Exodus 4, are you there? Have I stalled long enough? Remember last week we spoke about what's the big deal about me? Today might I just say, it's the signs of your calling. Then Moses answered and he said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, oh, what's that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it to the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and he caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord your God, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. His hand caught it. It became like a rod. And God again says that they may believe this. Then verse 6. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. So he put it in his bosom, his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, it was leprous, like snow. And he said, well, now put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like the other. You might have the word flesh, like uh, like his other flesh. And then it will be if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water in which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord God, you are so good. So marvelous and glorious and kind and loving. So personal and so real and so powerful. And and I openly confess, I don't get all your ways, but you've never told me that I was supposed to. There are times certainly that you give. There are times certainly that you take away. There are times where you build. There are times where you tear down. And Lord, I know that if I could see your agenda, what's on your rota, I know for sure that I would welcome everything you do. But because I don't, I just have to trust. And Lord, one thing I know that is so countercultural, even within the Christian world, is the idea that you've enlisted an army where every soldier does his share. Every part of the body does its part. And yet, God, we've so, I just want to stand in the gap and just say we've so failed at that. We've so failed to assume that there's a handful of experts with PhDs that do all the work and the rest of us sit idly by as a spectator watching the quote-unquote experts do the work while the world dies around us, people we know personally. And we're afraid. We come before you because we're afraid. We're afraid that people will reject us or laugh or mock the very things, Jesus, for which you give very stark words to say that if we are ashamed of you in this evil and adulterous generation, that you 
you'll be ashamed of us there before the Father. And we don't want that. Somehow we, we think that we could live this life of mundanity and of, of just monotony and somehow in it at the end of it I'll stand before you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we haven't even served you. I don't want that. I don't want that for me and I don't want that for anyone you've put under my tutelage, anyone that you've given me the privilege of being able to stand before with a staff in my hand. And God, I beg you today that you do more than impart information, but that your word would burst open and come alive and impact us like a stun gun, tase us with your spirit in the way that we would be shocked out of our apathy and transformed to a place of availability where our hearts would be broken for the lost where our lives would be genuine, where we would be humble and follow. And God, that today we would recognize that our life and everything about our life is in you, not about us. We're not to lead, we're to follow and only to lead that who you, whom you've given us. So Lord, by the power of your spirit, cause your word to burst open and come alive. Color in the black and white. Redeem every second. Lord, take my lips and only speak through them, Lord, that which imparts imparts change upon each of us. Speak to us individually today as well as corporately. God, please don't let us be in a place today where we think that this was for someone else. God, speak to us today. You've told us that whoever has an ear to hear, may we hear. And God, that's what we pray today that your spirit would speak to this church today. So give us ears to hear, not just to overhear, but to listen. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, come upon me so powerfully, Lord, that this will clearly not be me, but that you will work so profoundly that every one of us would say, wow, what a big, awesome, wonderful God. I want to say that today, not just intellectually, but personally. So Lord, please now have your way. Cleanse, challenge, exhort, encourage, save, transform, warn. Do everything you intend your word to do. May each of us now encounter you, we pray. By the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your final say. Okay, now look at what seems, and it's, it's almost rough to go through this slowly, because to be honest, there's an argument, and it's an argument between a guy and God, because God's called him, and this guy has a problem with it. And I think what's really rough to slow down and look at, to be honest, is how often this is like us. I mean, if this was just like someone else, we could mark it off as irrelevant and go, well, I'm sure that's for someone else. And when I find that person, I'll lead them to the scripture. But when we get to this text, you kind of get the idea that there are really, I mean, well, let's just say this. I mean, in the beginning, remember, God says, look at, I've seen their oppression. I've heard their cries. I know their sorrows. I'm coming down to deliver. And then you can see, uh, it's, yes, good, good, good. 430 years in Egypt, 400 of those years in bondage. And finally, God's like, finally, we have seen no miracles. We've heard no prophecies we see nothing for over four centuries and now god parts the silence 
breaks open the sky and speaks through a bush on fire. And there is a guy who for 40 years has been holding a staff, different than the first 40 years where he could have been holding a scepter in preparation for his, uh, in preparation for his, his, his being a pharaoh. And now here he is holding, a scepter, holding from a scepter now to a rod, that which would be a shepherd. And in all of that, the radical difference of him learning to follow and in, in that learning to lead sheep. And now in all of this, now God speaks and he goes, look, it's time to start delivering them. But he goes, now look, I'm, I'm, I'm coming down and okay, good, great, but I'm sending you. And you think, I'm sending you, me. And all of a sudden, after God says, I've heard, I've seen, I know, Moses' question is the same as us, who am I? As if the issue was us. We forget we're the jersey and he's the athlete. And all he's looking for is a jersey that's not willing to fight him as he works, as he does his was he, is he does what he does. He's had two questions to God so far. Who am I? And then who are you? Those are the two things he's not clear on. What's clear in our text is the one thing he does know better than himself. And the one thing he knows better than God is his rod. That's the one thing he knows here. His question, and really if you think about it, is because suppose they won't believe me. Suppose they say the Lord hasn't appeared to you. Suppose they don't listen to me. In the end of it all, there's that question, first of all, how do I convince them that I'm called to this position? How do I convince them of this calling in my life? But see, masked behind this, let's be honest, we're human beings, masked behind this, is not that Moses is looking for a way to convince other people of his calling. Moses is looking how to be convinced himself of his calling. That's the problem here. It's like, I don't want to go before people and make a fool of myself. I don't want to say, hey, James, God's got this great calling on my life. And James goes, idiot, like, right, you're delusional. You've been out in the sand for too long. No, 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 really, I was barefoot in the desert talking to a burning bush. That's going to convince him, huh? I mean, you get the idea. No, no, really, I'm called to pastor. I'm called to evangelize. I'm called to share. I'm called to teach. I'm called to counsel. I'm called to encourage. By the way, in Scripture, everybody's called. Now, not everyone will answer that call. Oh, many are called, but few are chosen. And that call that's ringing and there's caller ID and it's God. And some say, yes, Lord, I'm available. Hello, what's the assignment? And and others are like, no, 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 no. Let's just let that go to voice message because we don't want God to think that that I'm actually going to do what he, you know. And then we'll raise our hands and say, God, I give you everything. And whatever you want to do with me is just great. And God says, cool, I have a little something. You're like, no, 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 no. No, I'm too busy being available to do anything. And then we want to stand before God at the the end of it all and say, look at what I've given you. And God says, what? Lip service. It's not worth much. Inasmuch as my people draw near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are so far from me. God knows. Because man looks at the outer appearance. So you can fool me. You can look like super Christian. You could come in here, look like you're levitating. And when you pray, you can make it look like it rains or fire comes from the sky. But the Lord looks at the heart. And man, you can poof, wala, wama, abracadabra all you want. But in the end of it all, the Lord's not looking for that. He's not impressed. And in this, by the way, notice and understand, this was the God who's creative enough to invent jellyfish that glow in the dark. Right? 
They, I mean, you, you know what it's like to see those old 1970s marquees where they used to show what film was showing and the lights would go, they chase each other. And God, you know where they got that from? From jellyfish. Because in, if you look at those things, it's like, and they go, and it's like, God invented that. We put together this telescope over the last 30 years, and we're very proud of that telescope because it actually goes farther than we can go by any form of transportation. And we see these galaxies that are, that are colors that we can't even seem to put into a crayon. They're just beautiful. They're awe-striking. And in the end of it all, looking from any one of those places, you couldn't find the earth as if it were a speck of dust in comparison. But we think we're it, right? And yet, in all of that, this is a God who does all of this. Who made a platypus? I think as a joke, but just the same, made a platypus. It gives milk, it's got a bill, it quacks, it's got fur. Nobody knows what to do with that animal. You know? And to be honest, he's just weird the way he makes us. We look around, this is God's creativity. He stuck all of us together. And the reason I say that, this is a God, by the way, he didn't start with parts. It isn't like God had all of the parts laid out like we do, and at the end, some of us, we're like, well, I've got a few parts over. And you know that if you've got a wife, that's a uh-oh from your wife. Why are there parts left over? Oh, they're spares. No, 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 they're not. You know. No, hey, let me tell you what fish and I am. I did it with less pieces. You know? And you know, I can see God going, well, I made, okay, well, I've got, some, I've got a bill and some fur. I better, okay, let's, there we, and the reason I say is God made everything out of nothing, out of nothing. And yet, though he made it out of nothing, now he's got to give Moses signs to convince Moses of his calling. And God is infinite in his creativity. He's unlimited. Think about what he could have told Moses. You're going to wave your hands and everybody's going to be covered in feathers. He could have, but he didn't. He could have said, you're going to open your mouth and all of a sudden angels will go, Hallelujah. Then you could, but he didn't. I mean, he could have said, you know, he could have just said, you know, you're going to open up your hands like this and an iPad is going to land in them. Now think about what that would be like 3,500 years ago. Charged. (laughs) Nice flats. You can't even write on it. Um, But instead, God picks three signs. And the reason I say that God with infinite creativity picks these three things to convince an ordinary guy that he has a calling on his life that's actually going to be bigger than him. Can I just say this, please? God will not call you to something to the level you can do in your own strength. Are you aware of that? Because if he did, who would get the credit for that? I mean, we look at Jeffrey, if God, you know, we look, we've got Jeffrey, we've got Micah. If God called me to put together a basketball team, and, you know, and it's like, and we're going to pull an Andrew while we're at it. And, you know, it's like every one of us, you add our, you know, it's like we stood shoulder on to shoulder. We would be ducking for planes. And, you know, and, you know, and it's like, oh, well, we certainly can't, we can't forget Nathaniel. And all of a sudden, I'm the short guy, you know, and, and all of that. And, and the reason I say this, people go, well, yeah, duh, look at how good, you know, you guys, all of you guys are like Amazons, you know. And, you know, we're going to play, you know, we're going to play a team from China. Well, no, anyways. But the, the reason I'm saying that is, is that God has a plan in your life that has to be bigger than you. And, and, you know, we like that intellectually, but that puts us in a place that really is frightening. Because that means, I mean, in essence, God's calling every one of us to walk on water. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but it is the case. And, you know, it's weird. It's like the least brilliant seems to, to, to deafen scholars. 
And it's the weakest that seems to shun the strong, the mighty. Isn't that what God said in 1 Corinthians? And I tend to think, well, God must be calling me to this because I already naturally appear to excel, but anything I could excel in, God gave me. And you watch a guy that has to think through tying his shoelaces. It's the bunny that goes through the hole. Can I have Velcro? And then he stands up and he opens up Scripture, and it's like the guy just, it's just beautiful. And the reason I say that is, is please stop thinking that what God's called you to is just something kind of cool. He's called you to something ridiculous. Now, I don't know, again, what that is. You may not know what that is, but can I just encourage you, delight yourself in the Lord, and you're going to find yourself doing it. But maybe you're in this place today where you're like, you know, God, I'm not really sure. I mean, you know, we took a chance a couple of years ago to come here. And it's like, you know, and we were the underdog in the sense that why would God send us? Because we we're American. We are the least likely to do anything cool in England. Well, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, I, and, and I'm not saying that any like look at us. The whole point of it is, you know, it's like the, the beauty is, is that the Lord loves to do things where it just doesn't make sense. So people go, well, that must be God. And it's, you know, the older I get, the funnier it gets that the Lord keeps giving us a young fellowship for which, by the way, I praise God. I praise God. And if you're in that place today where you're like, you know what, but, and you want to give God your but, but this, but that, God, I pray you would take these three things to heart. Because this is what God pulled out of nothing to convince him. And I have a feeling it's not just for him. So what is it? Somebody who's freaked, who gets nauseous at the thought of speaking to one person stands up in front of a thousand? Maybe. Somebody who freaks out at the thought of sharing with one person but is okay with a lot. Sharing with one that will change the world? I don't know. What if God gave you the gifts of healing? Boy, if I thought that were the case, I'd be going to every hospice one at a time and say, whoever wants to receive the Lord, I want to lay my hands on him. And if you don't want to receive the Lord, you need it all the more. So it's like, so, so what if? Now, isn't it amazing how gifted we are at what if and it's always negative? Anyone ever give a good positive what if? What if it rains today? What if I get hit by a car crossing the street? What if my wallet falls out? What if after I buy an annual oyster pass that somebody that it falls out on the oyster, you know, falls out on the train and then all of a sudden it's like I just spent over a grand on nothing. What do I do? What if I invest and it goes belly up? What if I open up my heart and they break it? What if, anybody ever positively what if? What if money fall out of the sky? Okay, that sounds a little ridiculous, but so is it by the way some of the things we think are what if too. The odds of some of the things we could say. What if somebody actually gives all of my children today some gift when we're at a restaurant? Actually, that's not even a what if. That's sort of normal. One of my children, we used to go to a place called Denny's. It's, it's in essence sort of the weather spoon without the pubish attitude to it in America. And it's like the place where you can get a good cheap breakfast. And, uh, and I thought that they loved the food, which always a little bit weird. But one day I, I realized I, there was a, one of those claw machines in the front. You know those machines where you put in a, a coin and the, you maneuver this claw and it comes down and it can either pull something up or not. 
Well, for whatever reason, this particular child of mine, um, every time we went there, different people would always be there, and they were good at that thing, and they'd get something, and they would give it to our children. And finally, I realized why my children loved that place more than any other. They looked at me at the end of one of this, this particular daughter. I don't want to say because I don't want to embarrass Shante. But anyways, the, um, in it, she looked up at me as a little girl and she said, where's the gift? And I went, what are you talking about? Where's the gift? She goes, yeah, nobody's come and given me anything. And I realized every time she had been there, somebody would just walk up a total stranger and go, here, this is, you're so cute. Here you go. Thank you. This time there was nothing. She was angry. Denny's, that was it. We're done with Denny's. Where's the other place with a cloth, you know, game in it? And the reason I say that is we could, you know, you, you could, you shorten your life by your what ifs. Don't you? I mean, you shorten your life by it. And here we are. And Moses is throwing it before the guy who, by the way, is perfect, who knows everything, who has put the calling on his life in the first place, who has the ability to give him everything that is necessary, to give him all the commission for the mission. And in that now, he wants to argue with the guy who's calling him and say, what if? What if this doesn't work? God says, wow, you... In other words, you think about it, this isn't about just convincing those people. Moses needs it. And God says, well, then let's, let's play some signs out. Here's the first of them. Suppose they won't believe me. Suppose they won't listen to my voice. Suppose they'll say, the Lord hasn't appeared to you. You're a delusional maniac. You've been out in the wilderness. So the Lord says, well, let's take something you are sure of. Now, at that moment, more sure is he than the sheep, than the sand, is the one thing in his hand. What's in your hand? Let's start with that. What's the one thing you just know? This rod, that's what I know. Interesting, because the, the wood that he would be in that area, by the way, does anyone know what the, the wood that, that would grow long enough to have a staff? I almost brought one, but I thought I'd get arrested by carrying it on the public transportation, because I have one from a Maasai. If you're familiar with them from Kenya, they're known for killing lions. They actually, to become a man, you have to kill one with the same staff I would have brought. So you can imagine why that would be a concern. But um, the, the, the kind of wood that grows there, you need a hard wood, right? You need a hard wood. And the hard wood that grows there, interestingly enough, is acacia, which I think is interesting because does anyone know what's going to be made out of acacia soon? Well, the, the ark. Interesting. And that's got a specific smell to it, kind of like cedar has a specific smell to it. It's got to be a hard wood. And for 40 years, you tend to keep your own, you tend to have a specific staff. You tend not to, you know, it's like a baseball player or like most people, they have a specific tool of choice. You know, you don't just go, oh, Tiger Woods, just use my clubs. You know, it's not going to work. He carries his own bed with him. I'm sure he's got his own clubs. Well, so guys like, well, what's this in your hand? Well, I mean, let's work with the one thing you know better than you know better than you. And he's like, well, no question about it. He doesn't go, I don't know. You know, God's like, well, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know who I am. Let's work with the simple. What do you got? What's in my, well, I've, I've got, I've got a staff. That's what I've got. It's a rod. It's a rod. Let me tell you what I know about that rod. For 40 years now, I've walked around with that thing. The bottom of it's burnt. It's burnt because I've been digging it in sand that's hot that I'm now standing barefoot in while a bush is burning that I'm arguing with. On the end of it may have Marks stains of blood because part of what you learn as a shepherd, well, it's four things you know as a shepherd, to lead, guide, guard, and feed. That's what you need to know as a shepherd. But to guard, 
you got to know what it's like to fight. And you know, you got to know what it's like to fight something that you are bigger than, that you've been commissioned to be bigger than, but the animal isn't, that you're protecting. And that's why you take something big and long because you don't want to get close to it anyways because you'd rather not get hurt at all. And you take that thing and bang! You want to make sure that they know. By the way, you want to make sure your sheep know that when it gets tough, come to me, I'll take care of it. Just somewhere on there, some stains of moments of defense. Somewhere on there, maybe a couple spots you need to wipe off because sometimes you have to walk behind the sheep. At the top, sooner or later, even the hardest wood gets grooves where your fingers would be. I remember this nick right here from where I almost fell off a cliff. I remember this hook and where I had to pull that one darn sheep that always seems to want to run off. Well, there's one in every group that just can't seem to stick with the crowd. I remember all that. Now, there's one thing I know. It's the staff. It's been the sign and the symbol of my monotony for 40 years. God has shelved me. Oh, there was a time I thought I was going to deliver Israel 40 years ago. 40 years in the palace. 40 years of being trimmed and prepared and being able to speak fluent Egyptian. Oh, now this has been for nothing. What has it been? You need to recognize that God's not to raise up a deliverer out of Egypt. He's going to have to get Egypt out of the deliverer first. And, and there are things that he's known, his people have known for over 400 years now. And here's the first thing he tells them. By the way, the word is the word shalach. Can you say shalach? Shalach. That comes Hebrew. You can't say Hebrew like shalach. Shalach. Thank you. Very, tov mode. Very good. No. Shalach means to throw down. That's what it means. Or to reach down. Because I want you to take that thing and I want you to throw it down. Just throw it down. And by the way, he's... Assumedly facing the bush, right? I mean, it would be really goofy if the bush were here and he's arguing like this. Well, you know, God would be like, you really? And you're going to, no wonder why we're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. But, you know, he's facing, imagine if he's facing the bush and he says, throw down your staff. Where are you throwing it down before? You're throwing it down before the Lord. And so he throws it down. Now, what do you think Moses thought was going to happen? I guarantee you it was not what happened. I guarantee you. I'm going to throw it on the staff, and God's going to say, now let me put something new in your hands. Let me replace it. That would make sense. By the way, shepherds never throw it on their staffs. They sleep with their staffs. You learn, I mean, you learn how to fight with that thing. And you learn how to fight with both ends. You learn how to swing that thing. You learn how to jab with that thing. That thing's key. Throwing it down is a really rough thing, because by the way, that's your defense too. You recognize that, right? It's not just to defend the sheep. It's to defend you. So he throws it down. Now, of course, we recognize what happens here. In verse 3, it says it twice. Throw it to the ground. That's the word shalach. And so he did. We'll see in verse 4, the same word again, twice used. It's used four times then in those, three, in those two verses. Verse 3 and verse 4. He threw it down and it became a serpent. Now, why a serpent? Could you imagine if he had thrown it down and it became a bison? This giant or a woolly mammoth. 
This giant nut. Now, that would be, it would convince you that something really strange is happening, right? Could you imagine him saying, grab that thing by the tail? <laughs> it's a donkey. You'd be reaching over like that. Why a serpent? Well, there's a couple of things you need to know about a serpent. First of all, anyone want to guess what serpent's most common in that area? Let me give you a hint. A king cobra. Would you show that slide, Lauren? Well, let me introduce you to something. And I don't like to just kind of harp on somebody else's rotten things, but I think it's important to recognize this. And this is called wajit. Can you say wajit? Wajit actually... See, remember before with Joseph, there was a lower and an upper Egypt, and they were united by a king then that did, wouldn't recognize anything Joseph had done. Well, in the lower area, actually the official sort of patron defender of the people, of the land, and of the pharaoh was Wajit. Wajit was a cobra. Interesting, you can see it. By the way, that's Tutankhamun's mask, by the way. You might be familiar with that. You kind of get the golden blue there. Pretty bold. Well, by the way, this kind of thing here, by the way, is the other. Now, you'll notice, it'll, you'll find it on most of the things that they actually call gods. This thing's called the Urias. Could you say Urias? And it's known as this, which again is that serpent, why you follow backed up by the sun. Now, the reason I say that is when they were united, it gets adopted as the official protector of Egypt, all of Egypt, of the people and of the Pharaoh. Now, I want you to recognize why God picked that. Because to the Egyptians, that was their security. That was the thing that they felt safe. They prayed for safety. They prayed to this particular God. Now, for Moses, who I remind you, his first, well, beside the time that he was weaned from his mother, after which, until he was 40, he was raised in Egypt. And he was raised in the ways of Egypt. He was raised saying, this is your protector. Now, here is Moses holding a staff, a thing that he's known for 40 years now, half of his life. And he throws it down, and it becomes the very symbol of Egypt's defense. And by the way, what does Moses do according to this text? He flees like a little girl from it. Which, by the way, that just shows you he wasn't ready for that. He wasn't expecting that. Which one of us would be? So you've been a cleaner for 40 years. 40 years. And God says, throw it on your broom. (laughs) Which one of you doesn't jump out the window? And God says, now, take it by the tail. Now, I don't know if any of you have actually seen the crocodile hunter, but have you ever seen how he actually picks up a snake? kind of does it the same way. I wonder if he got it from this. You know what I'm saying? Um, It's interesting because for whatever it's worth, nobody grabs a snake. By the tail. What you usually do is you get a rod with a little lasso thing on the end of it and you kind of get it around the head and you pick it up that way because then you kind of feel safe that it's not going to bite you because you have its head. But I want you to reach over and grab that thing by the tail. And as he grabs it by the tail, well, that's the one part of the rod he's the least familiar with. Now, is there any time when a shepherd actually grabs the tail of a staff? Well, there is. If you were an under-shepherd, let's say we have some sheep, and it's Juan and James and myself. And we're going to go through an area that's a bit dangerous. 
as it's a bit dangerous, the chief shepherd's got to lead because he's the one who should know the land better than everyone. That would make sense. But when he leads through areas where it's rather narrow and it's a bit scary, what will happen is, is that the chief shepherd will offer his staff to the next of line. He'll grab the bottom end of the staff to be led, for which then he will step with and he'll offer the bottom end of his staff to the next guy in line. Do you see what I'm saying? That's interesting because the sign that he's given is so profound. He's going, the reason, the way that people are going to know your calling, you've thrown down your protection and you're willing to follow. To follow the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. You're not the boss. There's one way that you kind of have that question. Let's face it. Somebody kind of steps in and goes, let me just show you. I'm new in town and I'm the boss. And you already know kind of from the beginning, like, who is this bozo? And why does he think he's doing this? The moment you kind of walk in and say, I'm at the top of the staff and you're going to be at the tail, you kind of know already you're naturally, and you should be reluctant to a guy like that. Twice for what it's worth in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 28, verses 13 and 44, he says, I'll make you the head, not the tail. And the idea is God says, if you follow me, I'll make you at the front. I'll make you the leader, not the follower. Now, if you don't want to follow me, then you're going to wind up being the one at the bottom instead of at the top. That's up to you. Your choice is whether you want to obey me. Now, my question to you, saints, is in your calling, instead of trying to show the world how great you are, how gifted you are, how many amazing talents and blessings that you've been just endowed with, what if you actually showed a person who's willing to follow the Lord even when it doesn't make sense? You're willing to humble yourself enough to say, you know what, I'm going to grab his staff by the tail because this isn't my staff anymore, it's his. I'm giving you now... Well, the best way we might be able to say it today is we get out of the driver's seat and we get in the passenger seat and we stop trying to tell him where to go. To be honest, it's one of the greatest things about watching a person who's responsible for leading is to watch their face when something happens. Flying from the capital of Tanzania to the very center of Tanzania, where 200 pounds overweight before we as human beings get in the plane. We've brought too much gear. Stuff that we're going to give away, by the way, to the tribes that are in the bush. Things we're going to minister to the people there. And now we're going to add on to that now another quarter or more of a ton of men, which I contributed gladly to a great deal. And we look, and as we get up towards, we start climbing, we hit these air vents. Some of you are familiar with them. An air vent is these, this sort of this heat, this hot air that shoots up sort of from the ground. Well, planes don't fly as well in it. So what happens is they drop, and they drop really, really fast, and they drop straight down, which is never a good feeling, because then you're actually picking up like your lower intestine, because it just slammed into your throat, you know? And... What's worse is there's an alarm that comes on a plane. And the alarm that comes on the plane sounds like a car accident. It's like, it totally makes that sound. Which is, by the way, no, there, there's no like positive relation with that sound. There's no part you go, oh, that just warms my heart hearing that sound. Usually that's the sound that you get that uh-oh feeling. And I kid you not, we drop 
well, according to what he was saying, five stories. So we're climbing up, and then it's like, and we're like, now what do you do at that moment? Pray, throw up, both. I look at the pilot. Because in the end of it all, one thing, I mean, you know, pilots kind of have this like regal. They always seem to have silver hair and they're kind of smooth, you know. They're like, yes, of course. You know, I mean, you don't want to get in a plane and it's like, hi, my name is Billy Bob. I hope we get this thing off the ground. Good luck. Take your prayers. We'll hand out cookies if we make it someplace to level off. No, no. You want a guy that's like, well, we're going to be cruising at enough altitude. You know, it's like you're like falling asleep. In his spare time, he teaches on like a jazz station. You know, okay, well, now relax. Okay, okay. so I look over at the pilot because I want to see whether or not this is normal, right? I mean, you know, all of my intestines are fighting for space by my brain. And, and I look over him and he just kind of looks over and he goes, whew. And that was it. I'm like, should be okay, I guess. We climb a little bit more. We drop again. Oh, come on. I look over at him, he's like, ooh, that was a bigger one. Oh. All right. We climb farther. We hit a third one, and it's like, okay, this is the mother of drops. It's like, ah! And at this point, I kid you not, I'm with one of my assistant pastors. He's looking for reception on his phone to call his wife to tell her he loves her one last time. I kid you not. I'm with two guys from America. That's one. The other is an emergency room doctor, an A&E surgeon, and he's got a bag. And he's just going like this. I'm thinking, this is not good. I'm like, Lord, if this is the way to go, could you kill me before we land? And I look over, and the pilot's knuckles are white. And I go, okay, that's not good. That's not comforting to me. And he goes, we're going to have to climb to over 10,000, 11,000. Uh, and you know what happens at that point? You're, you, have no ox- you lose oxygen. So, and you know the worst part is, the farther you had to climb is the farther you have to descend on the other side, where there's more heat vents, and you know it. Thank you very much. So, anyways, all of that to say that there's this point where you kind of look, and you look at the pilot, because the pilot still, he's not the master of it. He's, he's got a plane, and he's trusting, and he was a Christian. He's trusting the Lord to hold that plane up, though we're way too heavy. And there's something about being the under-shepherd that all I have to do is look at the shepherd and know that he's not troubled. God is never sweating. God never gets white knuckles. God's never freaked out. And the word difficult is only in the vocabulary for him to understand us. You know, it isn't like God goes and goes, Ooh, man, Satan, what am I going to do with him today? Or you've sinned today and you said you'd never. And God's like, I didn't think you'd do that again. How do you surprise God who knows everything? Don't try to surprise him with a birthday party because he knows it ahead of time. You know, he's not going to go, oh, wow, look at what you did. He knows. And the reason I say that is, is that there's something about knowing how to throw down. And that's, and, and, and that's what happens here. God says, look, throw it down. Just throw it down. And if I throw down that which is supposed to be, what I've learned is my security. 
that people actually take that seriously and go, wow, that's really strange you would do that. Now, I'm going to say something really dangerous, but listen, before I do, you know we never take a collection, nor will we ever. There's a box in the back. That's just it. But I want to say this. What is your security? I'll tell you, for me, it's money. I'll be honest. And, I, and, you know, it's like, oh, we can't talk about that in church. Why not? We should be able to talk about everything. Whatever your security. I'm not telling you give it all to me. That would be dumb. I would be a bad person to give it to. Or even if you, the whole idea of it is it should belong to the Lord and it needs to be thrown out. It, I mean, there's, there's something about saying, you know what? No, 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 no. I've got to have this prepared. And I'm not telling you to be dumb. What I'm telling you, though, is don't make anything your security and then try to convince other people that you really have a go for it in your spirit. Because that's what the world is looking for. Someone that's got to risk it. In their spirit. Not someone that's like juvenile and foolish and, 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 you know, sort of rambunctious. But I mean, somebody that's willing to just say, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to leave that stuff on. Oh, this makes me feel secure and safe. But you know what? That's where the Lord wants me. I'm going to do it. And someone that, you know what's going to happen. Someone that loves you, that means well, is going to say, you know, you're going overboard. I'm like, yeah, Peter did too. Yeah, he sunk, but he walked on water. He's the only one who could say that. There were 11 other disciples that went, fool, you sank. And he said, yeah, but do you know what it feels like to walk on water? You know what it's like to, to almost float. You were going down in the boat. What difference did it make? We all got in the water. And the reason I say that is, is when the Lord calls you to step out, he's going to call you to step out and to risk it. I mean, to risk it. And if that means somebody has a problem with it, and I guarantee you they will, get over it. To be honest, some of those people, most of those people who see you risk it may come to Christ as a result of it because what they're really looking for is somebody that really walks their faith. And how do you walk your faith if there's no risk? Well, with that in mind, that's our first of them. Throw down. Reach down. And notice what he says as a result of it. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers... God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to you. You want to know that they believe in it? I want to see you risk it. I want to see you not trust the world for all of your security. I want you to trust the Lord. Now, I'm not telling you just do it because you do it. I'm saying when the Lord tells you to do something, obey him. Don't worry about the risks because you will always do better. For those who abandon anything for him. Verse 6. Is that enough to convince you? By the way, I've learned this even in my own life. If I don't have that risk in my life, I won't believe God called me either. Furthermore, the Lord said, now put your hand in your bosom. This is a different word. It's the word bo. Can you say bo? bo. Come on now. Bo. bo. Thank you. The word for bosom. It'll be used 34 times in Scripture. This is the first of them. He put his hand in his bosom. Same word. And when he took it up, behold, it was leprous. Interesting. Leprosy will be mentioned 64 times in Scripture. This is the first time for that as well. The real question we might want to ask is, did Egypt know anything about leprosy? Is this a brand new thing? Interesting. Show that next slide if you would, please. Um, this right here, by the way, I don't know if you're familiar with it's called the Eber Manuscript. The Eber Manuscript is the oldest known medical manuscript in the world. 1550 BC is what they've actually targeted to. And where is it found? It's found in Egypt. It has over 700 different medical diagnoses and remedies 
including this one is one of my favorites, although I wouldn't recommend it, by the way. Half an onion and a, and a froth of beer is considered a delightful remedy against death. Maybe you're too... Yeah. Maybe if like someone's trying to kill you, you've eaten too many onions, it keeps them away, or you've drank too much and you don't even know you're dead yet. They do recommend, but by the way, there are over 15 different things that are spoken about about skin diseases and of which leprosy is mentioned. And this is before Moses. So leprosy was clearly a thing. As a matter of fact, what they called it was the death without. And the idea was the death that came from the outside and then continued to kill you until it came and made its way in. Interesting. They recommended, by the way, a hog's tooth, cat and dog dung, booked, uh, baked with um, set berries, by the way, with an, an ostrich egg, a tortoise shell. And it's starting to sound like something you do in a cauldron, right? With a gal with a nose that goes, ah! Well, that's kind of the idea, right? And thorns. And one thing I've kind of recognized in all of this is the one thing that the, uh, that the Egyptians really kind of liked is they really liked onions and poo. Those were in most of the recipes. I'm not too sure why that is, but it's like, you know, oh, you're sick. You know, what you need, I kid you not, for one of the skin lesions, what you were to do is to make a poultice out of lead and cat poo. You bake it and then you rub it. On, yeah, well, there you go. That's not going to happen on my side. I don't know about you. Now, here's, here's the point of it. So what is Moses doing? Because remember, God, who's infinitely inventive, is telling him to do this. Now, in the first case, I kind of get it. This was my identity. This is who I am. I'm a shepherd. Here's my symbol. What's yours? I'm a musician. I throw down my guitar. I'm a dancer. I throw down my shoes. I'm a what? I throw down my bling. I throw down my turntables. I throw down my bookkeeping ledgers. I throw down my taxi meter, whatever it is, right? My guy says, now you're going to take it by the tail. Now, if I take it by the tail, I'm not telling God this is not my ministry anymore. My ministry is this little thing in a corner. Now, from this point on, this is just how I make my money or my bread and butter. His bread and butter was the staff. Do you get it? What God says, there's no division between the saintly and the the, the uh the sacred and the secular, it's all going to be sac- It's all going to be sacred. From this point, it's all his. But in the second case, I get this and I start to look at this and I start going, well, what is he doing? He's, he's got this, you know, this coat, and is this, which, by the way, you only do because it's white and it's supposed to reflect the heat. And then you stick your hand in. As you stick your hand in, interesting, because that bosom is the place of greatest intimacy. It was the place, by the way, where the wife was to rest in her husband so she would be consumed and absorbed in him. God created it that way because he wanted to use that metaphor for us so that we could fall into the Lord and just get engulfed. As a matter of fact, the last time we see it will be with John when it says the disciple whom Jesus loved resting in Jesus' bosom. And and you you look and this is that. And by the way, today we would say the heart is the idea, that place where all of your emotions and where your care and all that is. You reach in and you pull it out and it's, it's death. I imagine that I would have wanted to flee from this too, wouldn't you? But praise God, God didn't just end with that. Because then he'd be like, well, you can only do this one more time. So save your other hand until you get there. That would really be a bummer, huh? You know how this happened? Let me show you. Ah, dang it, now what? Right? But don't miss this. 
The f- interesting, the first thing is we reached down. We threw down. That's what we did in the first thing. Interesting, this particular term, by the way, means to reach in. And as I reach in, I realize that inside there is death. The first time I reach in, that's what I see is it's, it's death. You guys, look at this, it's death. And I got to reach in again. And it's interesting because the word he uses the second time is not the same word. It's not that bow word that we see here to reach, to, to grab, or to, to, to take in. But rather, the particular word here is the word shub. Could you say shub? Now, this particular, when God says, now, do it again, he doesn't say, now, do that same thing. He says, now, shub. And the word shub is the same one that's used in Malachi 3.7 when the Lord said, return to me and I'll return to you. It's the word return. And I think God could have just said reach and then reach, but he didn't. He said, look it, you reach and this is what you get when you reach in. Now return. As you return, it's restored. And I get this crazy idea that in the first case, if I'm willing to reach down and to throw down who I am, my identity, my security before God, he says, now that's going to, I want to convince you, but unless you do that, you won't be convinced. And then in the second case, it's like, look at when you do this. And then, by the way, interesting, and I'm not trying to get sick, but the word circumcise in its imperative sense, when God says circumcise, do you realize almost exclusively every time God says it, it's about your heart? Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no more. Ezekiel eleven eighteen thirty six through 36, he says, by the way, I'll take that heart of stone, that dead, rotten heart, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, something soft that can feel pain. And you know what? Listen, please hear me on this. This world, if we're going to be living in this world without Jesus, it makes sense to be hard-hearted. It makes a lot of sense because you don't want to get hurt. Who wants to get hurt? I don't want people to muck around with me and I hate to be deceived and I hate to be played and I hate to be used. And you know, everyone's like, hey, I'm kind to you. And they're like, what are you selling and what do you want? You know, and in the end of it all, when we get to that kind of attitude, what person's going to actually ever think we're called at all in the Lord if we're so busy protecting us? And God goes, look, you need to recognize right now what's going on in your heart. Because, man, if it's death from without, that means something came on the outside that introduced itself to you when you decided to kill your heart as a result of it. Forget it, man. No more friends for me. Forget it, man. I'm not going to go invest in people. I'm not going to care anymore. I'm not going to respect anymore. I'm not going to give anymore. I'm not going to try anymore. I'll just live this out. And you become the robot just like everybody else. And God says, but you're going to have to return Because if you don't return, this is the state you'll be in for the rest of your life. You know what? Yeah, but then I'm going to feel pain again. Yeah, but you know what else? You'll feel pleasure. Because if you lock all this out, yeah, you may not feel pain, but you also won't feel any pleasure either. You'll die from the numbness in your heart. Do you want that? Do you really think that that's going to bless you? God doesn't want that. And you're like, yeah, but I'm going to get hurt. God says, that's okay. I heal. But please, love again. So I want to ask you something. Bitterness, unforgiveness, do you have it? Are you angry still? And then you want to tell people about how God restores and forgives and you can't live that out? 
God has called you to something so far beyond yourself. But might I just say, before he's called to do something through you that's so far beyond you, he wants to do something to you that's so far beyond you. And that is to give you a new heart, to restore you. And that's the word he uses here is restored. Do you see why God picked these things and not a woolly mammoth? He goes, well, well, is that enough? And he goes, well, to be honest, that will be enough. But then there's, well, there's a third thing, just in case. I'm going to give you a backup. Because, you know, by the mouth of two or more witnesses, a matter is established. So you got your two witnesses. But let me give you a third one anyways. Because it's kind of key. But what's interesting, what's unique about the third one is Moses doesn't get to try it out. Did you get that? The first one, he threw down the staff, it became a snake. He's like, now that's going to happen again. Now, see, again, he knew that staff passed, right? But let me tell you what he doesn't know yet. That staff is going to swallow other snakes when it becomes a snake in front of Pharaoh. That staff, by the way, is going to smack the ground. It's going to smack the, the water. The water will be blood. The ground will become dust and bugs and plagues. That staff, by the way, is supposed to be waved over the ground and waved over the water. That's, that staff will strike a rock and it will bring forth water. That staff, by the way, will be held up and the Red Sea is going to part. Do you think he sees that in that staff at this moment? Not when he's holding the top of it. Because you don't have the strength to part a water, but you have the following to do so. That staff is going to be held up at the valley and all of the Amalekites will be vanquished who have attacked you. That staff is so much more he has yet to see. Oh, it seems so ordinary right now. It's a stick. It's a stick. Unless it's given to God. It's just a stick. It's lifeless. Aaron's going to get one too, by the way. When Aaron gets one, his is going to actually produce nuts. I won't relate that to the church. You can work on that on your own. Let's go to our last thing. Look at I want you. I, I'm not here for you today to be convinced to go out and convince everyone else of your calling. I want you to walk out of here convinced of your own, whatever that is. And by the way, even if you don't know the details, I will say this: walk out of here knowing you are called to something beyond yourself, and it's God's job to do it, not yours. And if you can't see how God does it with these things, you'll never see it how God's going to do it through you. So the last thing is, look at I want you to go on. I want you to. And by the way, now we've got a couple new words here. The word here, by the way, is the word shifach. Can you say shifach? By the way. But before the word shifach is this particular word, and the word here is lechach. Can you say lechach? That's a fun one, isn't it? Lechach. You say it's good enough, then wipe the person's head in front of you. You got that? The word lechach, by the way, says, if they will not believe these two signs, listen to your voice, then you shall take. And the word there literally is receive. The word lechach is to receive the water. Because the reason is, this is the Nile he's going to have to go to, which flows. So you don't have to give a big scoop. All you have to do is drop your cup in and it's going to fill because it's living water. It's running water. Do you get that? You need to receive this water, this living water. And that is, I want you to pour it. And the word pour, by the way, is the word shifach, like you said. And the word means to release, to gush, to spend, to spill. 
First of all, I reach down. I throw down to God who I am. That's where it starts. Then I reach in and I go, you know what, God, this needs to change. This is bad. God's like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Look at what I can do. Okay, I get it. So first of all, I need to throw down who I am so that I can say, God, this is all you know. My identity is yours. Whatever you want to make of this, invent me the way you want to. And then God says, well, okay, well, then let's start with this reach in. And you look and you go, oh, this is dead. God goes, yeah, that's where we start in this reinvention. We want to start here where it's nasty and it's dead. Let's get that. And he goes, now, when that's the case, let me give you another thing. Oh, no, that'll be enough. When people see that, they won't even question it anymore. They'll start to look and they'll go, whoa, you care about me. Not just you're trying to get another point or trying to fill another seat or trying to build an empire. You genuinely care about me. You're like, you're right. Well, I might hurt you. Yeah, that's a risk. But I already agreed to risk it when I threw it down ahead of time. So then what's left? Well, look, at would you receive this living water and then release it? That's all I'm asking. But did you notice that was the third thing, not the first? I think that it's often today within the Christian circle that that becomes the first thing. You know, God, if I could just get some Holy Spirit. By the way, Scripture says God does not give us Holy Spirit by measure. And we're all aware, most of us, that when God speaks about living water, it's often in reference to His Holy Spirit. And you're like, you know what? If I just get some Holy Spirit, more Holy Spirit, I could just do this and everyone just like, there'll be just all of the cups will be full of Kool-Aid and everybody's teeth start to shine. And I just want to announce, and it's not only that, but it's, oh, I tell you, it's like everybody gets a Rolex on their hands and they all start to laugh and jump and skip and, and oh, it's just, and it's like, in the end it was like, God's like, you didn't throw it on anything. You're busy trying to make this about you. So people could come to the, get a gold Rolex hour. And now let's, we're going to, I have a gold shoelace ministry. Everybody that walks in, I wave my hands. Don't wear sandals. None of those croc things. Got to bring shoelace. High tops, longer shoelace. Everyone's got gold. And God's like, what are you doing? He's like, look it, you receive and release. I want to receive what God has for me. All right, Lord, you fill me with your spirit for your work, not mine, your work. Because you already reinvented me. That's what we agreed to at the beginning of this. Is that you said, you said that if I'd throw myself down, you would, you do, you, you want me. You want to reshape me. I'm just clay now. And as I, as you start to shape me, it's pretty clear I have a lot of impurities in here that really you need to get rid of. I know you want to. I don't want to fight you for it. Please take it. Please. And now that you've made me this vessel, well, this vessel is to be filled and poured out. And, and if that's the case, would you, would you do that, please? I want to reach down. I want to reach in. I want to receive and I want to release. That's what I want to do. Now let me ask you something. First of all, have you received the gift that starts this, the gift of Jesus Christ? Died on the cross, rose again. Receive that gift. So if you haven't received that gift, I don't care what you're holding on to. You're holding on to something you've invented is okay versus what God did. Jesus died on the cross because he'd rather die than live without you. He died on the cross because the wages of our sin is death. And he took your sin and my sin and he took it upon himself so that it all could be paid for. And then he rose again. So he offers you that forgiveness, that purity. But because he rose again, you don't serve a guy that just died with great intentions. You serve a God who rose again, who has the right to be your Lord. 
And as he's the right to be your Lord, he has the right to reinvent you. Have you accepted that gift? I'm going to give you that opportunity. Maybe you haven't been walking with the Lord for a long time. Maybe you're in a position where, you know, the scripture says that unforgiveness hardens your heart, but it also says that sin does too. That sin deceives you and in deceiving you, that your hearts get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They get darkened. Do you know what it means to be darkened? That means you just don't see things clearly anymore. Man, you remember when you first got saved, some of you, and it just seemed like black was black, white was white, wrong was wrong, right was right, and that was it? And then somewhere down the line, you jumped into this kind of weird place, and then you kind of grade things that were clearly wrong, and now you don't even know anymore because your heart's been darkened. You reach in and you go, wow, this is worse than I thought. God says, well, then return. That's my challenge to you. Return and let God give you a new heart. And then you say, all right, Lord, Pastor Tony doesn't have more Holy Spirit than I do. I don't. Scripture says God does not give his spirit by measure. I don't get more because of my calling. Do you realize all I did was say yes? The issue, remember, the Holy Spirit's a he, not an it. The issue isn't how much Holy Spirit I have. If he's a he, it's how much of me he has. That's the point. How much of you does he have? And as he fills you, he won't just go, oh, I just want to make sure you're full. He doesn't stop. If he is not given with measure, then he's never actually, he isn't like he just, he measured off, well, that's how much you can take. He actually pours so much that it overflows, so you spill it on everyone else. Isn't that the idea of pouring? So that even if you're not willing to tilt over, you're still going to spill because he keeps pouring into you and you keep falling out anyways. You don't get a choice in the matter. All you, like, all you can say is like, I don't want what you have for your Holy Spirit, because if you want your Holy Spirit, you know, I know, I know that means you're going to use me, and I don't want to be used that way. I want to tell you, well, what's that? You want to tell God what your will is? Because you've got a great plan for your life? Do you really think you know you better than He does? Well, I want to pray. But please understand, I'm not just praying for you, I'm praying for me. Because every day I wake up and I, you know, the problem with choices like this is it isn't like you can choose once, even once a day and what, that was it, it's good enough for the day. Every day, it seems like you're filled full of choices where you could actually say yes a hundred times and once no, and that once that's no, you still pay for because it it's still dumb. And you know it. Oh, but that the Lord would lead us. And in that, what would happen if he actually did through us what he wanted. Let me say this last thing and we'll pray. Here's my struggle. And I'll be honest, it genuinely is a struggle. In scripture, it seems like when God fills someone with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the whole world changes. One guy. He fills Moses with the Holy Spirit and then what happens? He leads out a whole bunch. I mean, he leads out two million people. One guy. Pours it upon Joshua. They go into the promised land. Becomes theirs. One guy. Well, Caleb too. We'll grant you that fills David with his spirit and the kingdom becomes a kingdom that is so established the world can't still to this day deny it. One guy. One guy who's scared, weak, fearful, named Gideon. Fills him with his spirit. What happens? The Midianites are driven out. The nation's delivered. One guy. 
We paint Samson as this gigantic guy, but then people say, what's the secret of your power? What do you think he's going to say? HGH? Human growth hormone? What do you think he's going to say? I mean, he's like, you've been juicing? I tend to think the guy was actually really scrawny looking. But imagine that. Imagine the kind of little guy going, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And then he grabs like the gates of a city and throws them on his shoulders. Check this out. <laughs> Burn! What you got for that? What's the secret of that guy's power? You get it? One guy. Here's my question. What happened? How could a nation of people be filled? I mean, the church. I mean, if I thought about that's what happened with one guy, what would happen if God filled his, two people with his spirit? Just two. How crazy the world would be. What about five? If five people were filled like that, what would happen? How could there be over a million people filled with God's Holy Spirit and this is what we have in the world? What happened? And seriously, that is my struggle. But can I just say this? Maybe it's that we really don't want to be filled. We just want to be safe. What good is that? I don't want God, when I stand before him, to say, you made it. On a technicality, but you made it. How awful would that be? What if God could have rolled film and said, let me tell you what your life could have been. And you're like, whoa. That's a whole nation on their knees. But that was just me. And God's like, yeah, that's what I had planned. But you were too busy protecting yourself. Well, well, what happened? You were busy being safe. I don't know, but I do know this. That in this room, 50, 100 people that are above and beyond what they actually think they can humanly do. Could you imagine what that would do? I just want to be obedient. This isn't safe, but it sure is fun. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> God, I just want to thank you so much for your word. It's rough, Lord. It's rough here because you call us to, to that which... Well, it denies our flesh. It denies everything that the world is teaching us, but that would make sense since the world is under the sway of the evil one. And of course, that's rough. Because there are even people who, who claim to love you, and maybe they do, who love us, that will be so careful to try to make us safe. But Lord, could there be a safer place than with you? In your calling, I can't help think of David, who was always so much safer on the battlefield with you than he was in the palace overlooking houses. Oh, God, please. For every believer here, myself included, God, I just pray that we will throw down everything that we think identifies us and is our security so that the world would see we trust you. And Lord, in that, you've, you gotta, your, your job's to provide, and you, you do. You always do. Along those lines as well, Lord, I just pray right now for anyone in this room, and then you're welcome to dig through my heart and every part of it too, Lord. And if there be any hardness at all, I recognize in the world we live right now, there is this 
hate the church church that's been arising where it's sort of like people are challenged to not even call themselves disciples or just believers. And they don't even know what they believe except that they know that the church is messed up and they won't even be willing to try to do anything to encourage it. And Lord, I, I just pray you don't, you don't let us do that. You don't let us hate fellowship. You don't let us hate the church. You don't let us hate people, Lord, but you make us people who pour forth forgiveness. And we recognize for some of us, we do not have the power to forgive. But you who forgave all of man's sins live within us. And I ask for you to forgive through us right now. That we could let go of that death grip we have on that offense. Whatever it is, God, that's allowed us to build the moat and the fortress around our heart that now has allowed it to die. And God, I just pray that as we reach in and we see that death, God, that we pray that as we return to you, Lord, that you would well, you give us a heart that feels again. And Lord, in that, I pray right now as, as a water was a symbol of, of life to the Egyptians from the Nile. And by the way, the same water that Moses was drawn out of what Moses would now draw. And you've told us in Leviticus that life is in the blood, but I think it's so interesting, Lord, how Moses would take water and it would become blood, but Jesus, you would take water and it would become wine. The very symbol of joy. And it's interesting because Moses needed living water and Jesus, you took seemingly stagnant water, dead water, and you brought not only life, but joy to it. And God, I just pray right now, that we would be people, Lord, who don't tell you what we want to do, but first and foremost, we surrender to you, Lord, and we let you pour into us. We gladly receive all you have for us, not just your calling, Lord, not just your position and your placement, but also your power. And in that, Lord, that you would pour forth through us, that you would gush out of us, Jesus, just as you promised in the gospel of John, Lord, that if we come to you thirsty, that out of us would torrent living water. So, Lord, I just pray that right now, and I commit myself to you. I love you, Lord. Please have your way. I love you. Set this church on fire. That we would be people who are saying, Lord, use me, send me, develop me. But within the sound of this voice, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ and you know you need to right now, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen and at the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let these words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I confess to you, I'm not perfect. I've done wrong. I can't hide that from you. You know it anyways. And though because you know it, Lord, I stand before you and I have to account for that guilt. And Lord, I don't want to have to pay for it. And you've given because you so love me. You've given your only begotten son that he would die the death I deserve so that all my guilt could be paid for. And as he rose again, Lord, now you give me the opportunity to let him be the Lord, Savior, and ransom for my life. And I say yes. Yes to Jesus' gift. Yes to Jesus' death. Yes to his resurrection. And therefore, yes to his lordship. So have me now. Adopt me as your own. I am yours. Confessing the blood of Jesus now is my life. And I am saying I'm yours. Have me in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.